Pushkin. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Here's my typical day. Get the kids up, hang out with my daughter, make her breakfast, go to work, do 10 zillion things like write a book and make a podcast like this, grab lunch, try to get some exercise, come home an hour before bedtime, make dinner, email, sleep, repeat. There is no room for error in my life. If I get sick or even feel sluggish, the whole delicate system collapses. So what do I do? I take care of myself. I drink less, eat better, sleep more. And recently, I've added a new wrinkle, nutritional supplements from Symbiotica. I take them in the morning. They prepare me for the day, make me feel better and stronger. They even taste good. To really focus on routine, they even have a convenient subscription program. When you start a subscription, your supplements arrive at your doorstep every month. If you're ready to focus on your health and feel the results, head over to Symbiotica.com and use code GLADWELL for 15% off your subscription order. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. In early summer of 1999, there was a strange incident in Belgium. Products had been taken back from the market when it happened, but obviously it was already a bit too late. It began at a secondary school in a little town called Bornem, just outside Antwerp. A group of students got sick. Abdominal distress, headaches, nausea, trembling, dizziness. Dozens of kids in the first wave all ended up in the hospital. And the only commonality was that they had been eating together. But each had eaten their own sandwiches, so there was no possibility of a foodborne problem. That's Benoit Nemery. He's a medical toxicologist at the University of Leuven. He was part of the group that investigated the outbreak among the students. The only thing that they had in common is that they had drunk Coca-Cola from bottles uh, from a crate. And allegedly there was a strange odor in the Coke. And then the school teachers went in the different classrooms asking, is anybody feeling unwell? And drank Coca-Cola, which, of course, made sense at the time. But that led a few more children to report sick, to be taken to hospital. The story went national. The evening news was a montage of ambulances and worried parents. The next day, Four more schools reported outbreaks. I mean, it was really a state of 
Panik. Every single Coca-Cola product in Belgium was pulled from the shelves and destroyed. 30 million cans and bottles, the largest recall in Coca-Cola history. The company was in crisis. The stock price plummeted. I was transfixed by the Belgian Coke crisis, not because I had any special interest in Coca-Cola or Belgium, but because the whole affair reminded me of another panic, something I'd lived through years before that left me baffled and frustrated. My name is Malcolm Gladwell. You're listening to Revisionist History, my podcast about things forgotten and misunderstood. The next two episodes are about a panic that swept the United States a quarter century ago, an outbreak of insanity. I was in the middle of it, covered it as a young reporter for the Washington Post, but it took the Belgian Coke crisis a few years later for me to understand why it happened. Because you know what poisoned all those Belgians? Nothing. The best explanation Coca-Cola could come up with was that some of the carbon dioxide at their local bottling plant had been contaminated with sulfur compounds, enough to cause a slight odor, but trace amounts, orders of magnitude below what is necessary to cause illness. No major toxins detected, nothing that would suggest true poisoning. And so epidemiologically, it made no sense that there was poisoning by a single, the same agent. After looking into it, Nemery and his colleagues concluded that the crisis was an example of what's known as a mass sociogenic illness, what used to be called mass hysteria. People had real symptoms. They were nauseated and vomiting and dizzy. And the initial batch of Coke served at the school in Bornem was a bit off. But the Coke didn't poison them. There was no actual connection between their sickness and the thing they thought made them sick. Nemery says that he saw another sociogenic outbreak firsthand in Soviet Georgia in 1989. Soviet troops had sprayed a group of protesters with chemical agents. A terrible incident. The strange thing, though, was that the children of the protesters had the same symptoms as their parents, even though they weren't the ones who were sprayed. In the medical literature, there are countless cases like this. A group of people, linked by some shared anxiety, come to believe they have been exposed to something malevolent. And the scary thing is that when you're in the middle of a sociogenic outbreak, when you're vomiting and running a fever after drinking your can of Coke, you have no idea, none, that the cause of your illness is all in your imagination. So she spoke, I mean, her native tongue was German, and then she spoke Hebrew, and she learned English, and she learned French, and she learned Latin. This is mom? Yeah. Medieval French. Um, medieval French. Medieval French. And she knew Aramaic very well. Yes. That she spoke with a private teacher in high school, conversational Latin. They spoke Latin with each other. I'm at the house of Ada Hamish, just outside of Baltimore on her porch. She's a professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins. Next to her is her sister, Tamar, professor of medicine at Yale University. And next to Tamar, their father, Paul, retired professor of medicine at Georgetown University. Ada and Tamar are talking about their mother, 
Margit, also a professor of medicine at Georgetown University, until she died of cancer in 2011. And then when she got cancer, she's like, oh, you know, it's a little inconvenient, but it's going to be fine. It's <laughs> just the way she did her whole life. And she was very, very positive. She had this amazing ability to make whoever she was talking to think that they were the single most important person in the room with the most interesting story. Margit Hamish was born in Germany, then raised in Bucharest after her family fled the Nazis in 1936. She met her husband, Paul, in Israel after the war. She was the star. He was the protector. He was the cook. He was the come out of school and make sure you don't have meningitis when you, you know, can't move your neck. He came to the plays. He came to the games. He cheered us on. He took a backseat to her. He always did. For 60 years, they were a team. They would have breakfast in bed together. They would drive to work together. They would work in the same office. They would drive home together. They would make dinner together. They would go do whatever they were doing for the evening together, and they would go in the same bed. And my mother would say, I just don't see enough of your father. <laughs> I, all the time. I just don't see, see enough, enough of you. Yeah. Which is 24 like, 7. Yeah. And, and that's what she would say. She's like, I don't know where he is. I'm like, I think he went to the bathroom, mom. You know? No, I mean, they were crazy. I mean, <laughs> like, even, yeah. even when they were in their 60s, you know, they always read the paper on a Sunday morning. We had a, you know, big and, window and in front of the house. And the opera. Yeah. And so they would read the paper and they would literally chase each other around. Like, I mean, like kids in love. I mean, yeah. like, I'm like, okay, guys, like, you're 65. We've had enough. All right, like, come on, all right? Yeah, it's, it, it was it's, bizarre. It was yeah. very bizarre. Margit Hamish discovered an enzyme critical for newborn digestion, became an expert on human milk and nutrition, lectured all over the world, ran a major laboratory at Georgetown, funded by millions in research grants from the National Institutes of Health. An intellectual, elegant, and cultured. Even when she had three children, a full-time job, and everything else, they went out at least three times a week to a, a play or a concert or a performance every week. One weekend day was in the museums. The other weekend day was cooking for the week. Um, on Saturday afternoon, the opera was on, and if you made a sound, you were dead. Mm-hmm. So you took a nap from two to five. Yep, live from Lincoln Center. <laughs> in the late 1980s, Margit Hamish had a small problem in her lab. Nothing major. A disagreement with one of her researchers. The researcher quit, then she changed her mind, wanted her job back. The Hamishes rehired her. The second time around, the researcher grew even more disgruntled. She ended up making a series of accusations. Georgetown launched an investigation. Hamish was cleared. But the researcher then appealed her case to the National Institutes of Health, the institution that funded Hamish's research. Because the NIH gives out billions of dollars in research grants, they have a mechanism to ensure their money is used appropriately. In those days, it was an investigative unit called the OSI, the Office of Scientific Integrity. When universities could not resolve disputes on their own, the OSI would step in and take the case. That's what happened with Hamish. The OSI investigated and wrote a report. Several people asked me, what is this all about? And the truth is, is that I really didn't know what it was all about in the sense that, you know, there was a lot of ranting and raving going on. Now, let me ask you this. When was the last time you heard about an internal laboratory dispute between medical researchers working in some esoteric corner of human physiology? Unless you're a scientist, I'm going to guess never. 
People in academic laboratories work long hours in close quarters. The pay is low. You can spend years on an experiment with little to show for it. You might see the person next to you get a job or publish a paper or win an award that you think you deserved. Competition for funding is intense. Labs are stressful places. So what? That's why scientists publish their results, to work out disagreements among themselves. Fights rarely go public, except during a brief period in the early 1990s, the window of insanity, when everything went public. Back then, I was on a team of science writers at the Washington Post. We called ourselves the pod. We wrote about medicine and physics and psychology and covered the health bureaucracy, the NIH, the Food and Drug Administration, the CDC. And what were we obsessed with? Not just us, but our counterparts at other newspapers as well? Science fraud. There was the Baltimore case, an insanely complicated allegation against the Nobel Prize winner David Baltimore. The Gallo case, an unbelievable tale of the AIDS virus and a lab theft. The Cleveland Clinic case. It never ended. Leaks, lawsuits, page one stories, big headlines. A science writer at the Chicago Tribune, a reporter named John Crudson, wrote 80,000 words on the Gallo case. 80,000 words for a newspaper. I have written books that aren't 80,000 words. There was a nine-hour congressional hearing entirely devoted to a scientific paper entitled Altered Repertoire of Endogenous Immunoglobulin Gene Expression in Transgenic Mice Containing a Rearranged Mu Heavy Chain Gene. Nine hours, during which congressmen attempted to sound intelligent on the subject of transgenic mu products. Then, in the middle of all of this, Margit Hamish. I never met her, but for some reason, out of all the cases that bubbled up in the great science panic, Hers was always the case that affected me the deepest. It made me angry in ways that will take the better part of this episode and the next to explain. Why did Margit Hamish choose to spend her life in a laboratory out of all the things she could have done? It's not hard to imagine. She was a refugee from Nazi Germany. There were times when, I, if I remember vividly, I interrupted my mother because, I don't know, I was in sixth grade and a boy dumped me or something. I said, Nikki dumped me, and she looked at me and she said, you know, at your age, I was, you know, in an air raid shelter, you know, wondering what I was going to eat. A laboratory offered order and certainty and safety after all she'd been through. What happens outside the laboratory doesn't matter. And then, out of the blue, the outside world does matter. A routine disagreement with someone in her lab turned into a national story. Margit Hamish has been forced to defend herself against charges of falsifying data, plagiarism, and mismanaging research in her laboratory. Washington Post, January 22, 1991. Written by one of my colleagues. I'm not going to say who because I think that any of us back then could have written it. It was what we did. I remember vividly when the paper came out and one of my friends said, have you seen this paper? Have you seen this article? And I said, what article? And they're like, Is your, did your mom commit scientific fraud? I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And I read it and I was like, gosh, this is bad. It was bad. 
The Hamishes didn't want to talk at first. They told me they didn't want to dig up all those memories. I was married to her 57 years. It's a long time. And I was, I was her protector. Yeah, they had a completely symbiotic relationship. Uh, and he couldn't protect her from this. It was really bad. Case. And that I couldn't protect her in this particular case. Paul Hamish could not protect Margit anymore. She had been swept up in a panic. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Imagine you're part of a typical American family in the 17 or 1800s. After a long winter, you'd find the inside of your home covered in a thick layer of soot. Your kerosene lamps and your coal or wood heating system would have rendered your home in desperate need of a vigorous cleaning. And thus began the annual ritual of spring cleaning, which also included the very important job of changing out your smelly straw mattress. And while your current mattress most likely isn't made of straw, there's still a good chance it needs replacing. You deserve a Sattva luxury mattress. Sattvas are meticulously handcrafted and include all the luxury features you'd expect from a high-end mattress. But because they're sold online, they cost a fraction of the price of retail. What's more, Sattva will set up your mattress in the room of your choice and take your old one at no extra charge. After all, you've got enough work ahead of you with all that spring cleaning to do. And now, save $200 on $1,000 or more at sattva.com slash gladwell. That's S-A-A-T-V-A dot com slash gladwell. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I was raised not to complain. I had one of those English stiff upper lip fathers. He carried his wounds and grievances on the inside. And I'm the same way. It's very hard to tell the difference between when I'm calm and happy and when I'm teetering on the edge. Is that good? Sometimes. It keeps things calm for my kids. But there are times when we have to share our burdens and enlist the help of others in making sense of our lives. That's where therapy comes in. A good therapist is someone who can walk with you and make that load on your shoulders a little lighter. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash gladwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Gladwell. Would 
you knowingly allow yourself to be treated by a doctor with AIDS? It's been just over a year since dentist David Acer died of AIDS in Florida, and he left five of his former patients with the disease of AIDS. The Oprah Winfrey Show, September 1991. Oprah's guest is 23-year-old Kimberly Bregalis, one of five patients infected by Dr. Acer. Has there been any clarification, Kimberly, on how you contracted the disease? Was there a cut or was, was the doctor cut or was it transmitted through the instrument? or what, is there, Have you been clarified on that as yet? No, we haven't. You don't. And I suppose at this point it doesn't really matter that much. It doesn't matter. <laughs> the AIDS epidemic was then at its height. There was no effective treatment. The epidemic had started with the gay community and IV drug users and people who had received contaminated blood transfusions. But Kimberly Brigalis wasn't gay, or a drug user, or someone who had gone through a major medical procedure. She was just a college student in Florida, a virgin from a religious family who had done nothing more than go see the dentist. If you were to chart public fear of HIV over time, that summer of 1991, during Kimberly Bregalis's slow and very public death, was the peak. Bregalis's parents took her on a train from their home in Florida to Washington, D.C. to testify before Congress. They wanted mandatory HIV testing for all health care providers. An army of reporters from around the country climbed on board to document her journey. I was one of them. Kimberly Bregalis's Ride of Rage, September 26, 1991. Washington Post. She was down to 70 pounds by that point. When she spoke to reporters, her father would carry her in his arms. There was a 60 Minutes episode about her, a long-running controversy over whether her dentist deliberately infected her. Interviews, headlines, and then Oprah, twice. Now, in a recent letter to Florida health officials, Kimberly Bergalis makes it clear who she thinks is responsible for her having this disease. In an excerpt, Kimberly states, who do I blame? Do I blame myself? I sure don't. I never had a blood transfusion. I blame Dr. Acer and every single one of you bastards, she says. I'm dying, guys. Goodbye. Really, we all just are interested in knowing, first of all, how how you are feeling, and how are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm walking with, with assistance right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm eating a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still pretty weak. Mm-hmm. But I feel, I feel better. A few months later, she was gone. The great anxiety of the early AIDS epidemic was that science and the medical establishment had failed us. They hadn't protected us. And the Regalas case embodied that fear. We get a lot of abuse uh, from your, your medical establishment. I think that's one of the most frustrating things. When Kimberly appeared on Oprah the final time, her mother Anna was by her side. You know, uh, my daughter dying, they realize that she is dying. They realize that she is dying because of, of, uh, of the medical establishment, the civil liberties, the, the gay activist groups, and they're not doing anything. You know, I'm not emotional. I'm not hysterical. I am enraged. Ten years into the AIDS epidemic, people had found their culprit, the medical establishment. Now, of course, just a few years later, The same medical establishment that everyone was blaming in 1991 
would figure out how to treat HIV. And the thing that was so scary, infection by a healthcare provider, would turn out to be a one-off, incredibly rare. But no one knew that in the summer of 1991. All we had was fear and anger. And once you start seeing something dark in the motives of people in white coats, it doesn't end. Every disagreement, every anomaly, every molehill becomes a scandal. Welkom in het journaal van 7 uur. Dit zijn de hoofdpunten. Eerst worden de veevoederfabrikanten onderzocht als er bij hen geen dioxine of PCB gevonden wordt. That's exactly what happened with the Belgian coke hysteria. A few months earlier, Belgium had been through a crisis. Chickens in farms across the country had fallen ill. Their feed had gotten contaminated with dioxin, one of the most toxic of all chemicals. No, it was major. It was it was a ma- it's probably one of the biggest food scares in I would say maybe in history. Benoit Nemery, the toxicologist, was in the middle of it. The Belgian government had to recall anything that might possibly have been in contact with the contaminated feed. Eggs, chicken, beef. The news was filled with talk about how extraordinarily dangerous dioxins are, how even trace amounts can cause cancer. Every day on television you you could see animals that were being slaughtered and and dumped into mass graves. And the vernietiging op een heel specifieke wijze dat wil zeggen aan een 1400 graden temperatuur zodanig dat de dioxine afgebroken is. Then a few weeks later a batch of coke smells a little funny and the panic starts. A panic born entirely in the imagination of terrified children and their parents and teachers. School children being poisoned by Coca-Cola, which is again one of the biggest symbols of our modern food. And so that was really the sort of cherry on, on that rotten cake. Epidemics of fear repeat themselves. You start with dioxin, you end up with Coca-Cola. You start with Kimberly Brigalis, you end up with Margit Hamish. First time is tragedy, second time is farce. On March 22, 1991, the Washington Post published its second article on the Hamish case. It began the way all the science fraud stories of that era began, with a call to authority. Quote, The National Institutes of Health has concluded that a top scientist at Georgetown University Medical Center committed scientific misconduct by knowingly submitting false information in applying for two federal research grants. End quote. This is now two months after the first big piece on the Hamish case in the Washington Post. The Office of Scientific Integrity has finished its investigation and found her guilty. Maybe because this was a story written by someone else, and maybe because I could see it with fresh eyes, but I remember reading the piece and reading it again and wondering, what is this? Something's wrong. This was the point I became a skeptic. First thing. So it sounds like there was some kind of formal hearing which ruled against Margit Hamish, right? Actually, no. Here's the way things worked at the Office of Scientific Integrity. They would interview both parties to a disagreement, write up their findings, and then just leak them to the press. Someone in the office would slip his or her favorite reporter a package of documents, stamped something like confidential, or for internal use only, or simply draft, put inside plain brown envelopes, 
I got them. We all got them. Now, if you scroll down to the second-to-last paragraph in the Washington Post piece, you'll come to this. Hamish, who is chief of the Division of Developmental Biology and Nutrition in Georgetown's Pediatrics Department, will have an opportunity to review the report and submit a written rebuttal, end quote. Will have an opportunity. She hadn't seen it. And also, submit a written rebuttal. The OSI had concluded Margit Hamish was a fraud without showing her the evidence or letting her respond. I remember once, not long before this, doing another story on a science fraud case. I called the attorney for the accused and he said, well, I can't comment because I have no idea what my client is accused of. I took my leaked OSI report out of its plain brown wrapper, photocopied it, and sent it over to him. No part of that transaction had seemed weird to me at the time. Now, the most important question of all. What was it that Margit Hamish did? What was her alleged fraud? I have been going on and on about this case for a good half hour now, and I haven't told you. You know why? Because we didn't know. You won't find a good explanation in the Washington Post story of March 22, 1991, just vague mentions of an experiment involving rabbits. Well, let me tell you the final accusation against Margit Hamish. At the end of a 20,000-word NIH grant application, in a section that was completely peripheral to the subject of her grant request, Margit Hamish wrote the following sentence. Last but not least, we are presently using the newborn rabbit as an animal model for total parenteral nutrition. After scrutinizing every word of her grant application, the OSI said, that's wrong. Because at the time Margit Hamish wrote the grant, she didn't actually have the animal model up and running. She wasn't presently using newborn rabbits. Their understanding of the word presently was it stands as a synonym for currently. Hamish's defense was, she had designed the rabbit experiments, she had received the money to conduct those experiments, she had obtained the special surgical equipment to run the rabbit experiments, and she had begun collecting the necessary preliminary data on the rabbits prior to the experiment. She was going to do the rabbit experiments presently. She was using presently as a synonym for shortly, which is the way that it is often used in British English. The doctor will be with you presently. That's it. Her crime was not writing the more conventional, we will shortly be using the newborn rabbit as an animal model. Or maybe shifting the word presently to the end of the sentence, which is the one place where in American English we will accept the British definition of presently. We will be using the newborn rabbit as an animal model for total parenteral nutrition presently. But I don't know. She was born in Germany. She was educated in Israel. English is her seventh language. Okay, now you might say, this is ridiculous. Still, ridiculous cases sometimes happen. So what? But after Hamish, it dawned on me that they were all like this. All the science fraud cases that we had become obsessed with. Like the case of Mika Popovic, a virologist at the NIH, the scientist who figured out how to grow the AIDS virus in the laboratory, without which nothing 
no subsequent research on HIV would have been possible. Here he is as a bit character in a film adaptation of And the Band Played On. Yes. Yes, who's calling? At a time when people knew nothing about HIV except that it was the most murderous virus anyone had ever seen, Popovic slaved away in the laboratory, hours on end, working with samples of HIV-infected blood with his hands. Anything? How can I... How can I isolate this virus if I just can't keep the cells alive? Popovic was also accused of fraud. Why? Because in a chart... In the paper where he first described growing the AIDS virus, Popovic eight times used the initials ND in the place of a number. The chart's legend said ND meant not done. The OSI said, wait, you did do those experiments. That's fraud. Except Popovic's English is bad. Somebody helped him write the paper, and that person put in the footnote about ND meaning not done. What Popovic actually meant by ND was not determinable, meaning the results were inconclusive. So why did Popovic miss the error in the not-done footnote? Maybe because the article in question was published in 1984, when AIDS was in its first terrifying stages. And maybe he was in just a little bit of a hurry to publish the most important advance to that point against the epidemic. The battle over N.D. went on for years. The OSI conducted more than 7,000 hours of interviews and deliberations. Popovic sued, lost, ran through his savings, got chased out of NIH over a dispute over the correct interpretation of two initials, N.D., presently. It was like the Spanish Inquisition staffed by a mob of angry copy editors. In the face of a panic, it is the job of those who know better to stand and say, like Benoit Nemery did, wait, it isn't the coke. The coke is harmless. This is misplaced anxiety. It is the job of those who know better to deliver the difficult truth. But those of us who were science writers in that era didn't do that. We lapped up the leaks from the OSI. We wrote our sensational stories and we tore apart the lives of innocent people. No one remembers Margit Hamish today. She's a footnote. One scientist long gone, who worked away quietly in a lab on a problem that most of us have never heard of. First of all, the amount of material that this case generated was no less than 300 pounds of paper, okay? I mean, I would say... In, in their house. Right, in their house. So, And you didn't see the part that was downstairs. No, that but I you told me it was an entire it. file cabinet. Entire file cabinet. And then up in the cellar, there were boxes and boxes full of binders. Margit Hamish shouldn't be a footnote. Her case should be a warning. This is what happens when we let our fears consume us. But I opened a binder, and I mean, her annotations were... Meti- I mean, she annotated every... Every binder had her handwriting in it. This isn't true. I didn't say that. You know, I think this is misinterpreted. Tiny mom handwriting everywhere. Yellow pages, legal pages stuck in. I I disagree with this. This isn't right. Every binder. She annotated every Mom. Mom annotated every binder of everything with this case. So think about what she could have been doing with that time. 
Then one day, it stopped. How that happened is the subject of the next episode, how all the cases that obsessed us just went away and the fever passed. It aged her, I think, a lot. I mean, when I think of my mother and how she aged, she, she was a woman who, like, in her late 40s, early 50s, was still very beautiful. But by the time she hit 60, she looked every bit of 60. And that yeah. decade was probably hard for her. She was always G4 with me. And I didn't know that she's suffering. To, and to what extent she's suffering for this whole thing. Well, I don't think well, she, I take, she made no, I, to any of I, I talked to mom a lot about it. And she what she said was, I pretend it's not happening. until Unless I have to speak with a lawyer. And then I get a migraine. And then the next day I'm fine. One last question, and because um, I, I don't want to keep you guys forever. Did anyone from NIH ever apologize? No, no, but who? Yeah, no, I don't think anyone ever apologized. The insanity passes. Then everyone pretends it never happened. Except for those who don't have the luxury of pretending. I was angry about it then. I'm angry about it still. Revisionist History is a Panoply production. The lead producer is Mia LaBelle with Jacob Smith and Camille Baptista. Our editor is Julia Barton. Flan Williams is our engineer. Fact-checking by Beth Johnson. Original music by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to Andy Bowers and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Malcolm Gladwell. Even when she was dying, I took her in a wheelchair to the Kennedy Center as, as much as I could. She needed yeah. to see art. You know, there's something about the Porsche way of doing things that just speaks to me. Take the all-new Porsche Panamera, for example. It's not just another sedan. It's a bold choice for those who aren't afraid to go against the flow, both with the car they choose to drive or the way they live their life. The Panamera redefines sports cars, comfortably seating four and proving that you don't have to sacrifice luxury for performance. Build your dream Panamera online right now at configurator.porsche.com and choose boldly. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through their day. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, 
you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.